the fourth episode of The Time Traveler's Wife, Stephen Moffat's 2022 adaptation of the 2003 best-selling novel has now aired, and so we're going to have a good chat about it. We're going to look at the nature and process of marriage, compromise and compatibility, age differences both in ourselves and in relationships, future foresight, sitcom fast humor and how this links into grand narratives underpinning all of Moffat's work, what it would be like to interact with yourself at different ages, framing of certain sexual choices and narratives, fidelity and infidelity, do I mean to the text or in relationships, you'll soon hear. Seeing your partner at different ages and what that would mean, the things the show is choosing to dwell on, and Moffat's commentary on his own decisions, and lots more. We're going to dig into all that kind of stuff. This episode offered up a lot to talk about. And so doing the talking is going to be myself, Neo from Australia. I've read the novel and I'm now watching the show. I've seen the film as well. And I'm joined here by my friends Ingiga and Nate. Ingiga, what's your perspective on The Time Traveler's Wife? Where are you coming to this from? Um, I'm a complete newbie. Um, I've not read the book, never seen the film. Completely fresh from the TV show. And Nate, what's your angle on The Time Traveler's Wife? Well, I've never read the book. Um, but I've seen the movie a number of times. And so um, watching the show has been a really interesting. Um, it's been really interesting for me to see it as a adapt- an alternate adaptation of the same source material without knowing what that source material is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that because we've had book fans on these discussions, but getting a more solely a movie fan, I think is a really unique perspective. And also, you are American and also you are married, so you have a lot of closer <laughs> insight to this story than I think uh, that we do, which I really appreciate. Yeah, hopefully I'll be able to turn that into something interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, how to start with this episode? It reminded me so much of some of Stephen Moffat's earlier shows that we've talked about, his jokey sitcoms, his kind of sexual sitcoms from earlier in his career, uh, namely Joking Apart his 90s sitcom about uh, breakup and very messy relationships between exes, pretty much, and coupling his raunchy 2000s comedy about a, <laughs> a very raunchy group in their early 30s and how they relate to each other. This episode felt like a spiritual sequel to those shows in many ways to me, because uh, what was this episode about? What happened in this one? Well, it was basically a gigantic kind of time farce, wasn't it? I mean, essentially... Yeah. Essentially, we have a dinner that might have otherwise gone normally, but with the intrusion of two Henrys, it becomes this quite twisty festival of gags and, you know, shenanigans. Yeah, we had that brilliant farce. This is why it reminded me so much of his sitcoms. This just a stunning idea for a farce of the same man at two different ages at an already awkward dinner party, which would have been awkward enough on its own without the addition of another Henry. But then the other big thing we had in the episode was also Claire becoming an adult and the last meeting in the clearing between Claire and older Henry. So that was also a really interesting element. A particularly interesting thing about the dinner party, I think, worthy of comment is, as Nate would know from seeing the film and as I would know from reading the book, the two Henrys being there is an addition of Moffat. That's a TV show idea. In the book and the film, it's just the younger Henry there. Gig, what do you think of that? Does the older Henry feel so core to that scene that it surprises you? Um, 
I think in terms of what Moffat's doing structurally with making the dinner scene into so many other things, then you, you kind of need that element of time travel mixing it up in there because it also enables him to do all the other stuff with Ingrid as well. But in terms of older Henry and how he actually slots into that whole dinner section and specifically the fact that it's Henry 41 who's just been to the clearing, I kind of felt that you can maybe see the seams because there isn't a huge degree of narrative consequence that comes from Henry having just been to the clearing with 18 Claire and then being at the... That doesn't have much of a consequence in the, the dinner scene. It's more like he's just... He could be any old Henry almost in that dinner scene. So it's kind of like you can see where bits have been kind of stitched together just to make it flow as an episode of TV. Um, but on the whole, like, I mean, it's still really entertaining. Like, it's obviously just a, a tour de force of just a, an episode that goes through all the tones and ends on a note of kind of, uh, quite poignant emotion. I think having two versions of the same character, especially when they're at markedly different ages than each other, is just such a fundamentally winning and entertaining and kind of revelatory idea that it's just, it's, it's, it's perfect story fuel. It's perfect fuel for witty interactions like Moffat loves to write. This is why his, you know, big fandom show, Doctor Who, has whole specials based around the idea of what if different ages of the same character interacted. Because it tells you so much about the character by doing that sort of compare and contrast. And it lends itself to so much humour and character observations. So I just thought that was such a brilliant addition to the book the book sequence is already interesting and in the film it's realized interestingly too just with the younger henry and claire and her roommates there but adding another henry to the mix i think just limited it up so much it's such a perfect demonstration of how moffat likes to adapt things this kind of additive way this kind of changing things but in a way that kind of serves the the original st- i know there's a quote from him from an interview with uh, penguin books where he says at their best, I think book adaptions work as alternative versions of each other. I think when it really works, it's not about the detail, it's about being true to the spirit, and that might mean having to take a different route to get there. When it's well done, the adapter is telling you what they love about the original, and maybe it won't be why you love it, but in a way, what would be the point in it being precisely the same thing? I could only do an adaptation of something I absolutely love, because only then would I have the confidence to say that I know what's great about this, and I'd like to put that on screen. And I totally felt that with how he adapted that dinner party sequence. I think um, young Henry feeling like the third wheel when older Henry appears and the scene where older Henry and Claire are kind of flirting and, and you know, <laughs> old Henry's naked and young Henry's just watching them and seething. I think that was so funny. Like, just absolutely hysterical. It's such an interesting idea. Like, your own self kind of... It's like a um, cuckolding thing almost. Your own self kind of cock-blocking you or stealing your thunder. It's... Uh, is there even a metaphor you can read into that? It, it just feels like such an interesting idea. Like, I know there's things people will say like, oh, um, thank God for drunk me or thank God for sober me. And it's like, I, I'm, I'm interacting with myself in different ways. Like, do I leave something in my pocket? Do I not leave something in my pocket? Do I screw myself by getting so drunk I have a hangover tomorrow? Oh, sober me hates drunk me. I feel like the idea of having kind of discreet selves is kind of something you get in day-to-day life, uh, <laughs> not in that kind of dramatic a fashion. But I don't know, I just I just feel like there's something so interesting in that frustration Henry feels with himself. I guess part of it is, you know, the classic self-loathing idea, but I, I don't know, I feel like there's something so grand about those sequences where Claire is all over older Henry and younger Henry stewing over it. 
How do, how do you guys take that? I think there may often be times in life where people feel that perhaps the younger version of themselves is kind of, maybe they feel jealous of their younger selves in that way, but it's not usually the other way around because yeah. the way the direction time flows in. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's any exact analog to that. And it's something I was thinking of because it seems like there's such a heavy uh, symbolic or metaphorical potential for that, you know, connection, but I, I can't really, I can't really think of an example, um, but it there should be one, uh, just because of how, how true it rings in a way. Like it, it seems very realistic and grounded, um, and it feels as if it's something that people should be able to relate to. But, um, but I don't know if there is anyone who who does, at least not as literally as it is in the show. I, I think Alder Henry's perspective makes sense. Like it's a very normal thing to kind of judge youngest self or you know calling himself junior and lay off the drinking because this is going to do that don't do this you need to learn how to do that you look like an idiot like I, I i used to have long hair for a while when i was a teenager and i think i look so silly when i look at it now and so when older henry like tells junior to get a haircut like that's that's totally a readable thing but the other way around yeah it's so interesting because it's harder to find a relatable approach to younger you seeing older you i guess the closest thing maybe is like how Claire's roommates mistake Alder Henry as his dad. I guess there's kind of an element of that in there, like a parental thing. Yeah, if if I uh, if I read all the books I was supposed to in college, maybe I could say something very smart about like id and ego and super ego <laughs> right now. But yeah. um, but no, I'm not going to bother. Yeah, yeah. What did we think of how the dinner party actually went down? Or what what did you think of the roommates actually, especially Gig, since this would be your first exposure to them? Um. Yeah, it was, uh, it's, okay, I'm going, I'm going to try and avoid using the word interesting, because I feel like we've used that word far too much on this show. Mm. Like, <laughs> um, like, I think they, um, the way that they sort of introduced and kind of set up Gomez, um, there was, uh, despite him being kind of a scumbag for cheating on his, you know, his girlfriend, like, there was something, <laughs> I think he was one of those characters who, I think Moffat took care to try and make him a bit more likable. And yes. basically give, make him a bit more endearing in, the, in that sort of goofy way. Because you get that whole scene where he meets young Henry and sort of <laughs> becomes a, a chivalrous figure and kind of tells off younger Henry. And that, that's like, and that's both very funny and kind of also, and it, it, a bit of a hero moment for him. And also a nice, a nice moment of actually seeing young Henry be a villain and just a real yeah. scumbag. Because I feel like, we, you know, we've, mm -hmm. we've seen a lot of young Henry being kind of a lovable rogue. So it's good to see uh, the asshole side of him. But, um, but then with the, with the roommates as well, I, I, I hate to bring up, you know, joking apart again, but just some, the, Gomez and Cherise kind of being the side couple who are kind of, I'd say in their own ways, kind of troubled and kind of comic relief in some ways. Um, that's sort of what it felt like. I mean, um, particularly when we have the scene where Cherise kind of suddenly, uh, is overcome with attraction to Claire and kind of being really insecure with herself and kind of really, and kind of worrying about that she salivates too much and just like feeling like totally like, uh, like I, I, I kind of feel bad for the two of them because they're just stuck in this strange kind of situation, and it, it doesn't feel particularly resolved. And of course, they both cheated on each other with Claire now, and presumably mm -hmm. that that didn't seem to really go anywhere. So they're just kind of stuck being kind of the 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 sort of the side comic relief to Henry and Claire's magnificent love story. But um, they're you know really well cast, really fun, enjoyable characters at least. The Charisse thing. Uh, her having a crush on Claire and then them actually sleeping together. Uh, for one, I thought that was a great sight gag because, you know, it starts with just Claire uh, viewable on the bed and then <laughs> then we get the reveal. It's like a payoff for what we didn't realize was a setup earlier. 
uh, with Gomez in the bed. I mean, they Moffat is doing that a lot, that sight gag, where someone says something, oh, I'd never do this, cut to them waking up in bed with someone who they just saw they wouldn't have sex with. You know, that's that's kind of a repeated motif in this episode. That, the, them, the two women sleeping together, I think was a deft touch by Moffat, and I don't always say that for how he treats women-loving women interactions, but it kind of took the teeth out of the Gomez cheating in my eyes. And I say that because in the book and film, uh, the two women sleeping together doesn't happen. Uh, Gomez and Claire, yeah, although um, not exactly in this. Well, yeah, but not the two women. But I think having that happen kind of leveled things out in a way like that 90s Moffat sitcom Joking Apart we're bringing up. It did something similar at a point where there's so much cheating going on that... It's hard to have any one character like hugely villainous because it's like, well, you're all fucked up. <laughs> you're all making yeah. the bad decisions here. We can't really say one person is the paragon here because you're all making the bad decision. So, uh, you know, it's a repugnant thing that they're doing, but it's not like there's a huge moral high ground since both members of that couple did it. Well, I'm really glad that he leveled it out in that way because honestly, watching this episode, I mean, comparing these characters to their counterparts in the film where... They're there, but we never get any like real deep characterization of them. They're they're basically glorified background characters. Um, yeah. Whereas here, I mean, with Gomez is very. I mean, he he is strongly established as a character in this episode. He gets a lot of speaking time, especially in the first half. And I mean, frankly, I didn't like him that much. Like hmm. I saw the comedic relief, but then he was kind of being protective in like a, a kind of an overprotective way and then we see the cheating happen and it was kind of like oh man what are they doing with this guy right like what what are they doing with this character obviously you know of course the cheating was not included in the you know romance like the romance film version of this uh story so yeah um but then when they leveled out and then when we got to see his perspective in meeting Henry, then, you know, kind of on rewatch, it's like, okay, all right, I, I I shouldn't have bristled so hard at this guy. Yeah, I know. We'll get into this more when we do a discussion um, more specifically on the film uh, a little bit after the finale for this season airs. But it's interesting how much the film is like a idyllic, like, especially how it adapts Claire, especially in contrast to how mm-hmm. Moffat is doing it. The film, yeah, is a much softer kind of um gooier i guess version of the story in a way whereas <laughs> the, sh- the show is like leaning in so hard to the spiky aspects of claire and these other characters it's really interesting uh to see that difference especially because it goes so spiky like i <laughs> i really dislike the cheating as i'm sure most viewers do and in other and in, in moffat's sitcoms when characters cheat you know i feel repulsed but the way he does it it's like he kind of leans into uh how bad a thing they're doing is and then he it's it, it's not like he forgives them but yeah he, he levels that out by not having any character be that virtuous which i guess kind of makes it work yeah it's it's, it's quite interesting how he does that where claire is concerned <laughs> i recall last week i think oliver brought up how it would have been a nice idea for claire to have like a healthy relationship with someone else before you know she settles down <laughs> with, with henry and and this was like this was this was so not that this was like the antithesis of that and it kind of and it still feels like kind of a shame that Claire never really gets that. Instead, she just gets the, the most toxic thing ever. She bangs both her best friends and, and regrets it horribly. And she's just 
still pining for Henry the whole way along. So it feels like, on one hand, it feels like Moff's trying to push the idea that Claire should have some more freedom before she settles down with Henry. But I think it ends up, I mean, what he ends up writing is just that Claire still feels very much trapped by Henry. And well, not, not so much trapped, but trapped by like her longing for Henry and like a lack of direction and not really being able to form like her meaningful kind of, uh, sort of romantic-ish relationship with anyone else. Instead, she's doing these kind of self-destructive sort of chaotic things instead and just feeling terrible about it. Yeah, and I, I get the sense that sleeping around with him is part of older Henry's direction go out, live some life, have some experiences while you're waiting for me for two years, basically. It's it's like even her freedom is kind of bound within, go have some freedom while you wait for our relationship, which is what she wants. But yeah, it's a funny sort of freedom. I thought it was interesting that he told her how long it would be, you know, because in the first episode, when they meet for the uh, sort of first time, um, it very much seemed like she was shocked and surprised and didn't at all expect it. And of course, if you just know, oh, it's going to be sometime this year, of course you're not going to expect it on the day that it happens. But it's still not quite what I maybe expected or imagined, which would be, you know, if, if he's telling her to go be free, um, not necessarily putting like a box on it. Because really saying two years gives her like one year of freedom and then one year to like, you know, get everything set up so that he can slot neatly into her life when he arrives, which of course doesn't happen on his end. But, um, but yeah, that, that might've held her character back from exploring some of those healthy relationships. It's even where she lives, like it's such a ritual and rite of adulthood is, you know, having to sort out Mm -hmm. where you can live, where where you're going to, you know, sleep at night. But for her, we get that little note that she got a tip off on a really good place to live that's going to, you know, through some loophole about it meant to be getting destroyed and then it doesn't get destroyed. So she gets it at a good price or whatever. She's living at a place, basically, Henry gave her a tip on. So it's like she's not even really um, actualizing that kind of development as an adult. So much is still bound up in Henry. And I mean, it's a favor, like it's a very lucky thing in a big city like that to get a great apartment like that you know, as Henry yeah. admires it when he oh, walks yeah. in. But but yeah, that's it's it's still Henry bound, which is, yeah. And I think the attempts to kind of make out that it's not as unfair on Claire as it plainly is. Like when you have Henry talking about how, hey, you know, just think about me, I had to wait 28 years for you. Like I'm the one you had to wait, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, come on, like that that's bullshit. Like, come on. Like Claire has, Claire's never had, I mean, Claire gets this little two years where she can like, okay, Hey, you have my permission to go and you know, do bang other guys or whatever. But like, it, it's just it's just not even slightly comparable to Henry having this whole twenty eight years when he was just like a, a free agent almost. So yeah, it's it's not it's it, it's the situation is weighted against Claire in a way that's plainly unfair. And I would like maybe some more reckoning with that. Or I think one way they do try and play around with that is Claire sometimes gets knowledge that Henry doesn't have, which she kind of lords over him a bit. Like, there's the thing with the proposal, as we see in this episode. Uh, well, he doesn't think he proposes because he hasn't proposed yet until quite late, uh, you know, in his timeline there, in, in his 40s, where she knew that had happened for ages. She knew they had sex in the clearing, which she held over him. Uh, stuff with Jason in the previous episode, and she knew that she held over, well, not held over, that he didn't know that she did know that we heard from older Claire. So that's another kind of knowledge differential. I guess it's kind of 
an attempt to even out the power dynamic or at least give it some variance or dynamics there but yeah i agree it's still her whole life since a child and then even her burgeoning adulthood is so bound up in him that i don't know how much it holds there but it is interesting to see sometimes she sometimes gets knowledge that he doesn't have or at least doesn't get for a long time i think moffat is just going out of his way to put a lot of emphasis on wherever he can he tries to give claire like dominance or like a a, a way of basically a moment where Claire makes Henry do something you know, or Claire gets what she wants, has it her way just because otherwise she's just, she just ends up being too passive otherwise. And she's just like stuck, like just, just having things happen to her. So like the stuff in the, with the proposal, for example, and that bit where she's like, you know, I'm not marrying you because time says it. I'm going to marry you because you, you will propose to me now, husband. And you can, you can feel more as delight in writing a scene like that. And, and, you know, having, having a character basically like, and lines like husband propose, for example, and um, the, just the, the the contradictions of it all, and um, and just I guess a way in which it can feel like this is going like the way Claire wants it to, rather than it just being like done without her consent or without her like approval. Yeah, I think that's a. It's nice that he's putting in these aspects with such care to balance out the power dynamic, but. I think, as you said earlier, um, you know, it makes for good storytelling and it makes for more of a character. But in terms of does it really balance out the power dynamic? And, you know, the answer is absolutely not, which is why I kind of get um, skittish about his attempts in interviews to uh, kind of portray what she does to him and what he does to her as in some way balanced or equivalent or, you know, she actually changed him more than, you know, he, he changed her. And it's like, no, there for her entire childhood, he was like shaping her in her most formative years. 28 is not your most formative years. And he may change a lot, but, um, it's very clear that this is the story of wait for it. The time traveler's wife. So, yeah. And on that very note, in this episode, there's a line that Claire has, which is Moffat trying to do that exact thing. Claire says, this is the very spot where I groomed you. And I was yeah, like, that doesn't no. work. It makes no fucking sense. <laughs> like, on one hand, if you were trying to talk about um, later on, Claire building the douchebag Henry into her ideal Henry, like that's, I mean, that again, that is a different thing, but that's at least... That's at least a thing that happens, but like nothing, nothing of that's what happened in the clearing. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Claire, child Claire wasn't grooming older Henry. Like, literally, it doesn't make no, that doesn't make any sense. So I'm not really sure why Moffat felt he had to put that line in because it doesn't work. It's just it, it's awkward. And I think and I think Moffat is going to be gra- grappling and struggling with some of the awkwardness of just the the project of trying to like even out like the the relationship and make make it seem like less unfair to people i think rather than leaning into it yeah it's going to be a bit awkward i feel like henry yeah henry bringing up that oh we can't do it in the clearing this is where you know i interacted with you for years as a child i made a rule to never sexualize this spot i feel like that made it weirder than not saying any of that because that brings up like it's kind of retroactively sexualizing stuff there uh in a weird way like he could have not thought that or not said that i guess yeah it, it made it worse to to like lampshade it like that i think yeah i think maybe because it's moffat or because it's hbo they really leaned into that whole like whenever it seems like they have a you know sexual encounter it's always bookended by one of them saying something just fiercely uncomfortable 
um, about, you know, oh, this is where I groomed you or making some other reference, you know, my libido, etc. Um, I mean, I, I think it's, it's definitely, um, underlining that take and it's very clear that it's intentional. And that's something that I didn't, you know, frankly, episode one, um, I, it really caught me off guard because I've seen the movie any number of times and I've done the, oh, you know, he's, you know, this is really grueling thing. But, um, but I think since we see from the very beginning how he's not, well, not the very beginning, but we see very early on how he is very careful about not saying that he's married to her, you know, all those things that we later got in episodes two and three, they weren't there in episode one. In episode one, it was very ambiguous and, you know, they were just like going straight to sex and there was no, um, you know, it, with including these lines. And so I think that was um, uncomfortable and I didn't like it. And I think it's still uncomfortable, but at least now I see that it's intentional and, uncom and uh, uncomfortable. So hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully they'll continue to develop that in a way that isn't just totally morally repugnant. Um, but that's kind of, you know, that's kind of part of the story is how do these characters cope with being forced into, you know, such a horrible situation. Yeah, and the whole clearing sex thing, the, the, the thing is that scene is leading to what is essentially a sight gag, like we mentioned earlier, you know, Henry's mm -hmm. like, you think I'm that shallow, and then she strips and shows him her 18-year-old body, and the cut to, you know, they're waking up because obviously, haha, he is that shallow because he's a horny guy or whatever. And, and the thing is, like, I mean, that's one thing, but like, if that is the case, and that's where the scene is heading, do they really need the whole, like, spluttering lead-up to it, where he's like, oh my god, no, I, I made rules, I would never, never, ever do this, oh, oh I'm so conflicted and tormented by this, why, why are you flirting with me, no, ah, oh. like, it's, it's, it's like, you know, if, if you're gonna end up just, like, you know, having flipped the switch, like, that's another thing altogether. Because, um, I think throughout, and particularly, I guess, in the previous episode as well, there was this idea that when Henry actually oversteps his boundaries and uh, it's kind of by accident, like when he blurts out that he's married to, to um, teenage Claire, in spite of the fact that he was trying to keep that secret this whole time. So I think in one hand, if, if it was essentially, if him inadvertently doing stuff like that is like uh, an accident or essentially something that's like something that he just inadvertently stumbles into, it's sort of, it's less, there's less blame on Henry, I guess. But whereas if you but if you go out of your way to show like oh my god he's considering this really hard and just really he's really kind of uh, pulled back over this and then you do the thing where like oh he does it anyway then that that kind of makes it worse doesn't it I think like you said Neo yeah I think if if you engage with the whole idea less like the film does it's less weird and it's like it's less in your mind like you know say stop thinking of an elephant you're thinking of an elephant the show is doing that. With the grooming stuff, because I think Moffat has identified that it is a weird tension, and his process to work through that is to tr try and work through it by trying to work through it, which is difficult to do given what the story is. And so we keep processing it as well instead of just kind of moving on with the story as as I guess the film did it, mm -hmm. which I appreciate that he's looking at the tangled bits of the text like this. But yeah. Um, it's a hard thing to resolve, especially when you're adapting it like he is. I think my issue with it is like Henry is totally redeemed and everything by the text. You know, like he didn't choose to meet 
Claire as a young girl. He met Claire. He fell in love with her as an adult mm-hmm. in the library. He, you know, he had sex with her first as an adult. He got to knew, he got to know child Claire later. It all makes total moral sense from his point of view. But all the little notes like, oh, you know, we can't sexualize this clearing or oh, all, all these little notes, which basically saying, Henry, it's totally cool. You've done nothing wrong. It's totally okay. It's totally cool for you to, you know, bond with a child, Claire, this much. It's totally cool. For you. you actually did the right thing, what a decent man would do by doing this and that. Uh, it's totally cool for you to have sex with her on her 18th birthday, counting down the days and everything. Uh-huh. It's like this all makes sense in the narrative, but it's basically, wouldn't this be like the ultimate fantasy show for people, you know, such way inclined? Like it's the perfect, um, you've done nothing wrong narrative. This is the way... You could do all these things in a totally justified, rationalized way. It just makes me feel skeevy that, you know, the, sh- the show is not being written by a man like that. And, you know, hopefully it's, it's mostly appealing to men not like that. But it kind of feels like it's becoming and how it's adapting it a show like an unsavory person would feel like a nice fantasy projection into because how it uh, redeems Henry at every step of the way. And it like lampshades, this is pretty weird, but it's totally cool. You know, he's done nothing wrong. He gets to be in this situation and it's cool because of how we set up the narrative, which is, yeah, fine from the actual story's point of view, but I, I just feel like it's weird, the kind of enjoyment layer of it, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Do you guys get what I'm saying? 100%. Yeah, I think the whole thing of, like, it being literally the day she turns 18 <laughs> that they have yeah. yeah. It's like, I mean, that, that, that's, that's such a cliche with, like, the whole, like, oh, my God, basically people perving after 16, 17-year-olds and just waiting till the exact, like, the yeah. first possible instant they can have sex with them. I think, um, I think it's, and I think with the awkwardness of that situation in Moffat's lap and he basically deciding to lean into the skeeviness of it a little bit by basically having Henry just playing in playing up as a gag the fact that Henry is horny and turned on by you know the sight of her 18 year old body it's like it's it, it, it's sort of I guess just the 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 skeeviness and the creepiness and kind of the, the horniness and kind of the kind of inappropriateness it, it's like it's kind of it, it's there. It's like it's floating there. It's not really tidied away in any sense. Yeah, it's like the eighteenth birthday thing. It calls to mind, you know, how there'll be huge like communities online which literally count down the days till actresses or idols or whatever hit eighteen, so they can freely sexualize them and pass around, you know, their their videos or whatever. It's it's like it's 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 like lampshading that sort of thing, which is like. I get the relevance, but you're kind of bringing in that skivvy element into the story, which mm-hmm. isn't doesn't doesn't have to be there. Like, it, and choosing to bring that up is building up all these associations, which make it weird and tangled. And on some level, I appreciate the complexity of that compared to like the gooier version we got in the film, yeah. and maybe we'll get in the musical. Who knows? But yeah, it's just it's getting so adjacent to uncomfortable real world narratives that I feel kind of over the lampshading of the grooming by now. I feel like it made a bit of sense earlier on to try and get in front of it, but now it's not like he's in front of it. Now it's like he keeps bringing it up when we don't need it brought up anymore. There's almost like a weird kind of age play kind of kink element to it in the sense that 33-year-old Claire is completely fine with 41-year-old Claire going back and having sex with the 18-year-old version of herself. Like, hey, go back and bang the younger me. Isn't she pretty? (laughs) It's like There's just some weird kinks going on there. Yeah, it's all the story logic works, but it's like the show is basically making this narrative where this child or then a very 
you know, freshly turned 18-year-old is begging the older responsible man to sexualize her and to have sex with her on the spot where he interacted with her as a child for years and saying, no, it's totally cool. I want this. It makes all the sense in our story to do this. You're totally a cool guy for doing this. And it's like, yeah, what kind of man is going to super enjoy um, the associations mm-hmm. you're building up there? It's, it's, it's weird on the audience end is my main issue with it, basically. Yeah, I think skeevy is the perfect word for it. Um, not a word that I've ever used before. <laughs> and hopefully they've closed the book. Hopefully yeah. that he's closed the chapter on this part of the book because if we look at these first four episodes, which I didn't know that it's only a six episode season, that's horrible. Um, yeah, I wonder why they did that. It's very British. I think that in the first four episodes, hopefully this is kind of the end of that arc where okay, we've seen his proposal, we've seen the first time they slept together from her perspective, and so now done question mark i mean as much as he talks about the first three episodes being kind of the introduction and then episode four is where we can kind of get into it and i think that we do with the introduction of gomez and ingrid and all these other characters um but uh but then the flashback or flash forward uh the side flash to their first you know when she turns 18 that kind of felt like something from the first three episodes like it wouldn't have been totally out of place as like a resolution to episode uh three obviously understandably doesn't fit with the tone of episode three but it's very much engaging with all of those same um you know those same character elements and stuff and hopefully that's um hopefully that now that that's finished we can move forward with uh the show just going into the future but of course it's never going to be that easy yeah that link that lingering shot of the clearing at the end seems to flag up that the clearing stuff is done i i, I should i should think a, a kind of adjacent thing if we're talking about age differentials that comes to mind for me now is so gomez was 32 and claire was 19 mm-hmm. <laughs> that was um, kind of weird it, it felt less like i'm um, focused on but yeah yeah, that's certainly a suggestion that maybe, you know, she has a, a, a type, thanks to older Henry. Like, maybe. Yeah. Also, they flagged up that, you know, she 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 feels safe with older Henry as well. So I guess, and certainly when you think about, like, her experience with Jason and stuff, like, I think you can, you can kind of see how, like, she's been basically weighted towards people who make her feel safe because they're older, you know, yeah. rather than older and mature. I mm-hmm. thought the flashback with Jason was kind of excessive. Like, I understood why it's there and what it's meant to be doing but i think some of the language around that as well uh like the um the phrasing of firsts and saving myself and some of the stuff in the last episode as well it's a little there's some bits i think moffat is being really delicate with and handling well with the assault stuff and there's some bits where i feel like he's he's being very loud and kind of using a hammer where a softer touch might have been neater. It, it definitely fits as something that Moffat would do or something that HBO would do. You know, of course, you know, HBO's great um, and they can do shows that aren't all like sex and trauma. But, you know, that that is kind of what they have a um, a reputation for that they can. It's like a, like a brand. Yeah. Kind of lean on those aspects where reg- exactly. So, um, so I kind of wonder if that's part of it. Like if he was producing this for Netflix, like Dracula, certainly it would look very different. That's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about the HBO 
factor of it all. Yeah, that's interesting. I think when it comes to flashbacks like that one with the one of Jason, I think it reminds me of um, episode two, actually, because in that episode, the visual language around um, Henry's flashbacks, they, they were they were constantly cutting to like his memory of like the car crash and the splash, the splash of blood on the window. And they did it over and over again, like at multiple points, even when we could at points when we could have just seen from Henry's expression that he was remembering the car crash or whatever, they'd make sure to cut to it as well. And you kind of justify it in that case, because Henry's whole thing is that he's constantly getting sucked back into the past. So it made a certain degree of sense there. But in this case, like with Claire, it's like, yeah, again, it's like, you know, sort of gratuitous in the sense of like, we can, you don't need to actually like hit us in the face with stuff that we can kind of like infer. You know, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a pitfall often with television. They kind of feel the need to cut in a little flashback of stuff, you know, rather than just, you know, let us like read into like what the, the character is doing physically. Yeah, this could be a case for like an opportunity for great acting, right? Seeing how their faces can try to encapsulate, you know, yeah. that, oh yeah, they're thinking about their trauma. Um, but that's kind of that, that subtlety and that chance for technical acting skill is, uh, is a bit robbed by these by these harsh brash flashbacks. I will say um, the line that came shortly after that, where <laughs> Henry's like, "I don't want to be your first Claire, I want to be your last." That mm. got an oh out of me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was very, very kind of, kind of gooey in that sense, kind of like yeah. gooey sense, but it was it was romantic certainly. Yeah, he had another line in the apartment about um, Gomez's attraction to her being like flattering or like validating, like what man wouldn't be interested in you. Uh, that she really appreciated and I thought it was funny how Junior was like rolling his eyes at it. He's yet to learn that kind of technique, I suppose. Yeah. I guess a, a softer part of the episode then is the whole focus on falling in love and agency. I, I really liked that. Uh, mostly at the start, it was talking about it. Like, did the person you're in love with, were they what you thought they would be? Did you fall in love with the type of person you thought you would fall in love with? Did they arrive when they were supposed to did it feel planned and that's more of the great stuff from the book and from the show where it's very relatable applicable stuff to real life you know that it's illuminating with its big high concept time travel love story but yeah that's that's such a real thing that you know even people who have a type um you know will often <laughs> marry someone who doesn't fit that at all that's you, you there's not that much choice you know i i would agree in my experience anyway with what moffat is arguing that falling in love kind of just happens it's not really something you plan for mm -hmm. and that goes <laughs> like you think it might it just strikes you when it does and in that sense in terms of the way that the story is using the i guess deterministic and kind of forced nature of these temporal paradoxes as a metaphor for the uncontrollable nature of feelings and desire and just the the way in which we kind of despite having quote unquote free will we're also not really free in terms of how we feel and what we mm. do in, in some senses. I think <laughs> that reminds me of, of Netflix's show Dark, which tried to, well, claimed it was doing the same thing, but just like, it, it was just so much, so much clunkier. Uh. You know, when, when, when you look at an episode like this that just freely zips back and forth from, you know, future Claire to past Claire to older Henry to young Henry, like completely seamlessly. And it's just, it's just a reminder that no one else actually is able to write television like this and make it work so well, you know, because it's been done wrong in other in other places yeah i i think a um imagining a dark ified uh version of this show um it would just be so much worse you know leaning into the sci-fi tropes i mean it it really had to be done but imagine every time we transition time periods there's a ticking clock sound like <laughs> 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 nightmare you know 
I I binged the entirety of Dark while I had COVID, so I think. Oh, I'm so sorry. In my mind, it's just one huge fever dream. Um, so yeah. <laughs> tick 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 tick. I like that. Um, it's it's tricky for Claire's perspective since, uh, like a duckling, Henry had imprinted on her for forever. But from Henry's point of view, since we get to see more of his younger past here with Ingrid, we see, you know, if he has a type, it's this kind of, uh person troubled and with that kind of emotional fragility he has at that age uh and you know even visually she looks very different from claire like she even comments oh he likes redheads or something like that so i love that for him we get um you know this is his type or this is the person he has fallen in love with or maybe he usually falls in love with and so claire is so different from that uh, you know and he first sees her at a library you know it's it's a totally different kind of scenario i, I really like that element of seeing the person someone marries could be so different from the type of people they've dated or that sort of thing. I just, I love that relatable type of relationship stuff the episode was doing. Uh, I recall in episode one, he saw that random girl who was sitting like in the library somewhere and he told like the receptionist or someone like, put in a good word for me. I think the moment he sees like a young girl who he thinks he can like almost manipulate or like get like a a good word in or like, you know, sort of, sort of worm his way into her life pretty much. That's kind of the, the type of woman who he goes for, who, who just who can just be swayed by him, I guess. Whereas the moment he meets Claire, she's like, "Okay, I'm like this. You're like that. You're with me." Mm-hmm. And he's just like, "Oh, so so, so in a sense, it's a complete, it's a complete different type for him because rather than her being swayed by his young charm, she's been like, I guess she's committed to this, you know, hypothetical better version of him that's out there somewhere." There's an interesting thing with, I guess, Claire's kind of forceful over his life in a way that maybe Ingrid wasn't, or is that true? Or Claire, Claire is is exerting herself on his life in a big way. Uh, I think some people think this is a type of dynamic Moffat likes to write a lot. Uh, there was an interview I was reading today where the interviewer said to Moffat, there's an interesting through line in your work of complicated, often absent men in relationships with strong, fiery women from Irene Adler and Sherlock to the companions of the good doctor, what draws you to these kind of complex romances? And Moffat's Moffaty answer was, complex romances? Whereas you mean all those simple romances you know about? Have you ever found a simple romance? No. Fiery woman, there's an alternative? I never found one. God damn it, Moffat. <laughs> there's always the standby of the docile woman in fashion, and I always want to say, has anyone met one? What would they be like? So I think absent men, I don't know if I... Well, Sherlock is a weird old creature, but so is Irene. I mean, they're absent from each other, aren't they? I mean, if they had the remotest sense to get a house and buy a Volvo or something, but they don't, so they're absent from each other. Do you mean by that emotionally unavailable? Henry doesn't want to be unavailable. So I thought that was an interesting sort of response. That is just, yeah, Moffat always avoids the question. I mean, I think the more the more yep. obvious example there is the Doctor and River, because the Doctor is literally off, you know, sailing the cosmos while River's stuck around, kind of living her life in mostly one order. And I think like Moffat is always, whenever someone asks Moffat one of those kind of thorny questions, he always just like falls back on making some quip, like, oh yeah, well I'm just I'm just telling it how it is, you know, rather than really doing much in the way of self introspection, like maybe I'm actually specifically doing a certain type of thing because this is what I'm biased towards doing. And he, he never really co- seems to confront that. He just kind of worms his way out of the question. Yeah, I can, I can empathize with that as a, 
you know, I can imagine being in his shoes. It's, it's very clear that there's some like psychological aspect of his that is leaking through into all of his stories. Um, and being asked to, to confront that in an interview when maybe he hasn't examined it so much himself, whatever, you know, the, his joking answer is very much like, uh, oh, of course, this couldn't have been anything else. Yeah. I, th- I think if anyone watching the show is, particularly interested in how he's doing these relationships or these characters and whether they are or aren't into Doctor Who, the show you should really seek out if you can find it is that 90s sitcom joking apart because the links you're going to find between how he's writing these characters and the notes that interviewer brought up uh, are really fruitful and really, really interesting between those. You look at his whole career spread out over the years and yet there's so many through lines that the joking dismissals are almost like he's being the, the absent man he's avoiding kind of confronting there. It's, it's very, very interesting. Yeah. And of course, the gender essentialism always kicks in with Moffat as well. Oh, fiery women? Oh, there's no other kind. Yes, women are, you know, <laughs> hellions from Venus with, with hair of flame and, and they're spiky. And, you know, it, it, it's like, again, you know, it, it's presumptuous to assume that your take is just how reality is and all women are one way, you know. It, it's And it's what Moffat always gets accused of. Oh, he's writing the same woman over and over again. And you can see that he doesn't really do that, but he's still, like, he obviously has some gender essentialist ideas that kind of run through his work like men are from mars or whatever and you know it's frustrating when that uh, kind of bubbles to the forefront and most of the time it's not like that big a deal but whenever it gets like brought up with him and he just kind of like skirts the issue it's like oh the the complicating thing like in this show is that claire is a really strong character to my mind i think he's enhanced this character in many ways from the source material he's he's it's not just a matter of, oh, he gave her more agency. It's that he's complicating her and he's making her spikier and giving her more contradictions and letting her kind of be wrong or antagonistic in ways like... Uh, certainly the film <laughs> presents a much more... Uh, is lovable the word? A much more delicate interpretation of the character, maybe. Delicate is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think he's added. he's adding to the character. It's not like he's flanderizing... Uh, women characters down into like you know these simple stereotypes that's not what we mean when we say you know he's these kind of strict approaches to gender he has a very full sense of character and a very you know complex one and a, a, a big sense of character basically claire is not a just a stereotype in this she's a fully rounded character um <laughs> you know that's why we keep coming back to him if he was just writing you know very stereotypical gender roles and stories that wouldn't be interesting it's that he's also putting so much into these characters and, and I think enhancing them and improving them or at least adding to them from source material is what makes it so interesting and so much to unpack. Mm-hmm. It was very fun watching Claire and Ingrid kind of butt heads in this episode because that's that's kind of the first time we've seen that side of Claire almost, isn't it? Someone who's like a rival, an enemy, you know? Yeah. What do you guys think of Ingrid? I thought she kind of stole the show. Yeah. Certainly I- like the, the yeah. performer, like a really great introduction. It's really interesting how that conversation between Ingrid and older Henry played out. And um, it's very clear that she's going to be... Well, I don't know if it's very clear, but I'd like to see the rest of her story. And so hopefully that's something he fits in the TV show. And, um, And I'd also be curious to know if she's been visited by any older or younger version. Well, not younger, but... um. You know, is are are we seeing the story from 
Claire's perspective and not being aware that he's zapping back to Ingrid's life in various places. Um, you know, obviously they're not together as long. She's not as anywhere near as important, um, as Claire is, but, uh, very interesting, very interesting stuff there, or the potential for it at least. It was quite a nice kind of like twist in the status quo to just casually reveal that someone else knows about the time travel. So it's not Claire's special little secret. You know, it's something mm-hmm. that he shared with like the previous girlfriend as well. I think it, it, it's, it's a nice sort of, um, I can, I guess I'm shaking up the playing field a little bit and just kind of expanding what we think we know about these characters. I think Ingrid helps define 20s wavy-haired Henry's life better as well. We get the sense he's not just an undeveloped form of older Henry. He's his own character with his own story and his own kind of toxicity uh, in that sort of relationship. And she's her own character too. I I thought the show did well by her that she got to really argue her point of view and, and define herself and make herself known. I don't think she just felt like a prop to characterize younger Henry, which I was worried about. I, th- I thought she did quite a strong showing for herself. Yeah, they really unplayed um, up just, I guess, what she represents. Because in that line where she kind of hugs younger Henry, she's like, don't ever cut your hair. Stay young and wild. This beautiful, ideal, younger version of herself. This is the real you. And that sense, because yeah. obviously we know that she's essentially wrong because there is one version of time and that he will, he will inevitably cut his hair and become older Henry. So whatever she's saying, what she's saying can't happen. So she always, she, she feels like the, the joke is on her almost. But at the same time, like, it's very obviously flagging up the kind of, I guess, what she represents, the approach to life that she represents. Just the almost denial of, like, uh, the, the future and the need for maturity and growth. I felt sorry for her when no one went after her at the end as well. She's clearly hurting and, you know, the basically saying you're going to die relatively soon, you you know, you're probably going to kill yourself relatively soon. <laughs> like you'd hope one of them doesn't even need to be a Henry. You'd hope one of them would run out after her. It's mm-hmm. it's a sad story. Her life. I, I have to say, I'm a bit like I was kind of wondering why Henry didn't just like I don't know. Like I don't know why Henry thought he had to be like super honest there. Like considering he was perfectly happy like lying to Claire about loads of stuff. But like they felt like he needs like okay, I need to tell this woman that she's she's gonna basically hint to this woman that she's gonna die very soon. I'm not sure what he gained from that, or if it's just like he didn't he didn't feel like he could like had it in him to like mislead her. I think a lot of that was the show doing i know gig you said episode one did this a lot the kind of it's theme time <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah this isn't this isn't game of thrones we're gonna tell you we've got themes and we're happy to tell you about them right now uh and the classic love and loss drum that moffat keeps banging on uh i can even play a clip right now of, of moffat talking about that this is not forever in fact it's not for very long happy ever after is a terrible lie It's happy for a while. That's what you get. You are dancing on the edge of a cliff and you will lose your footing. But the music's still going, so what are you going to do? That's what it is. And it's something about what it is to be human there. There's something very big about that. Because we talk about being happy and settled and everything's great now. Yeah? You're getting older and sicker every day and... And you're going to have heartbreak and pain and misery. And at the end of that long and difficult road, life will play its funny little trick and you'll die. Right. That's your future. So uh, how come you're laughing? How come you laugh right now? 
right? Because that's what we are as human beings. That's what we do. We deal with the oncoming train by putting on the kettle and having a cup of tea. It's an extraordinary thing. I often, when I'm writing it, and when I was reading it, and and obviously spent more time writing it now, I, I would find myself in this little loop of thought. How does Henry cope with the fact? And then I'd remember, I know exactly the same thing. Right. I've got the evidence in front of me every morning as this beard gets grayer and those eyes get yet more hooded. I know it's going to end. So how, how do I cope with that? And I think easily. I It's amazing, but we cope with it quite easily. We just get on with it. We just, you know, uh, love means loss, but that doesn't mean you don't love. That just means you love harder, faster and better. And I think these are massive things to say. Love and loss being kind of the same thing or inducing each other or, you know, their relation to each other. Henry's basically giving the well-written and, you know, monologue speech version of that uh, right there. So I think she was kind of, sometimes, you know, a character is in service to the theme. So I think her sorry little um, treatment, I guess, in that way by Henry was kind of the show trying to, talk about itself a bit as well she's basically just reciting lines and dialogue from the show in the yeah so the moment they actually happened in the show like oh it's that thing moffat said like a hundred times <laughs> great well sometimes you know he opens his mouth and i hear henry come out or mark from joking apart mm. come out and you know and, and vice versa sometimes henry opens his mouth and i hear moffat come out a bit mm-hmm. but you know that's that's part of it's like moffat says there's so much of the novelist audrey niffenegger in claire uh it feels kind of appropriate that this summer Moffat now in in Henry. Or, if you know, even in the book, it kind of feels that way just because he doesn't arbitrarily love the book. He, he identifies with the book. You know, he connects with the book for a lot of reasons. It's not like, I don't think the book imprinted on him <laughs> and made him into what he is. It's he's connecting with the book because of similarities there. So it all makes sense. I liked at the start of this episode where Claire outright says the word farce, just flagging up that <laughs> yeah. this is going to be a Moffat farce because Moffat loves farces. Yeah. There's an interesting part where, kind of on that note, where I think it's younger Henry. No, it's it's Claire complaining to the Henrys, saying it's like you've got a script when she's talking about why don't you remember this, you know, as you should. And, you know, there's the clever little beat of, oh, well, he's drinking. So, you know, that means he can't simply remember it all. And also, do you remember everything you've said? I thought that was some neat ways, probably very familiar to Doctor Who viewers of how you can get around. Um, how do we generate a scene if this character is the older version and so they can just remember everything? Mm-hmm. I'm to blame for your bad memory. Someone else is having my erection was another good one. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> the two Henrys played off each other quite well, I thought. You know, this was the first time we've had that happening for such a long period of time and it was a big logistical challenge to actually shoot the whole sequence where they're in the same room interacting a lot with all these other characters as well there's a nice behind the scenes video on hbo's youtube channel showing how they how they pulled all that off and it was um Mm. yeah it it, it was a nice technical feat for the show and i think it's um it's yeah sort of unique in in some ways yeah i didn't really see the seams that much and you often do in you know split screen stuff like that but they handled it quite well i thought it didn't feel very constrained to me. It felt pretty natural. Oh, one thing we should talk about is the um, Bitcoin. Uh, oh, the, God. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it's very badly timed with Netflix as well, given Netflix has just had its fortunes fall somewhat. 
Well, I mean, we, you can get it on the ground floor. I mean, the, yeah, the Netflix one's forgivable. Yeah, the Netflix one is forgivable, I think. But, like, I, I think Bitcoin, really? Like, come on. There's so many other successful like companies you could have picked for that list. It's like Star Trek Discovery citing Elon Musk. Like, it's not going to age well, guy. <laughs> but it's 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 what what year are they in at, the, at this point? It it should make sense for two thousand eight right now, isn't it? For the dinner scenes, two thousand eight, I think. Well, I don't know the history of Bitcoin well enough to know if is 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 that a good ground floor? Uh, commenters, let us know. <laughs> that's around. That's got to be around when Bitcoin was starting off. 41 Henry says he's from 2021. So theoretically, yeah. everything that he writes down should be stuff that is from our past. So, But the, the names that were on that list kind of felt like they were like from 2089 or something, like just like gibberish ones. I think uh, one of them was for uh, semiconductors, which makes sense because of uh, the mm. shortages now. So Sure. Okay, so maybe I'm just being ignorant <laughs> to the <laughs> names of obscure things. It's interesting. I feel like... The kind of determinism stuff with Claire and Henry makes sense because it's a love story and that kind of clicks in. But the determinism of friendships, like, I know this guy's a prick and you're not getting on, but trust me, he'll he'll have you back. <laughs> uh, you'll get on later. Is that that feels like weirder to me, to be honest? Yeah, yeah, I definitely see what they're saying with the whole oh, you know, Claire is kind of you know turning him into her presidential Henry, um, and that has a very clear like sort of real life analog. Whereas of, you know, of being the, you know, trying to live in a way that you, you know, try to be the person that they think you are or whatever, or think you could be, um, that, you know, that, that's, that speaks to real relationships. Um, your friend from the future telling you the winning lottery numbers, uh, I don't think that has any analog. And I think that is something where, okay. If you're watching and you're paying attention and you haven't been listening to the Moffat interviews, it's very clear here, and it's been clear all along, that it's just a romance story. Or not just a romance story, but um, in the in the core of the story, it's not about the friends. It's about the relationship. Um, but, but I don't know, because Moffat is clearly establishing the friends as a much bigger presence than they are in the movie. I don't know. Are they... Well, I, I guess I'm not going to ask you for spoilers about the book, <laughs> but um, I, I think it kind of feels to me like a co-worker's thing because he's like saying there's going to be lots of proximity here over time. So, you know, get along. That feels less like a friend group thing to me than more like a, you're going to work with these or go to school with these guys. So you're going to form friendships just by virtue of uh, kind of shared proximity and having to rely on each other just because you're around each other. I like that Gomez is a genre-savvy character. That's always fun in stories like this, like referencing other time travel stories and trying to work out the mechanics. You know, in a, in a story that's not super concerned with him most of the time, uh, I thought that was a fun little flavor. I was definitely waiting for him to say... Yeah, I, I knew he was going to say clones a moment before he said it. <laughs> yeah. I was definitely waiting for him to say Doctor Who. Yeah. Uh, God. They said the web of time. I mean, that's the same thing, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Tickling the sci fi fans in the audience. I want specifically Gig's opinion on this as the show viewer. What did you think of Alder Henry saying, I've never seen myself older than 42? Um, well, my uh, fast curiosity there is that in those um, video monologue uh, to, to camera scenes that we get at the start of episode, I mean, we've seen Henry looking way older, like shaggy Peter Capaldi hair, <laughs> you know, looking like a, like, seemingly way older than he is in this episode. So I guess there must be something there. I mean, whatever happens 
whatever happens to him at age 42-ish that sort of results in him not seeing himself as much. I mean, it's really something, but I don't think it means he's going to like die right then and there, because we've got to find out how he becomes, I guess, a Peter Capaldi. But um, it's, uh, it's, 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 um, just got to try and avoid saying the word interesting again. Um, it's a fascinating, fascinating <laughs> yes. dimension to like have basically to have this character who seemed so on top of things, but actually to, to imply that actually he might be like an inch from death. It's a, it's a weird, I guess a weird new element. This idea that actually this, the way that the time travel is spooling out means that there is a suggestion that he might literally be about to die, which is kind of, is kind of, uh, yeah, I, I'm curious as to where that goes because I mean, it seems kind of plotty mm. in a way that I, I, I've, <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah, I'm not sure where it's headed, but you know, I am in- intrigued to see where it ends up. It clicks in a lot to well, the kind of threat or intrigue of what's going to happen with him, what's going on, clicks into one of the other big themes of the show, which is the kind of mindfulness, carpe diem, you know, live every day uh, like it's your last thing, which is another theme that gets pretty explicit uh in the show certainly this episode uh so there is that touch to it oh one of the things on uh changing the topic a bit i guess one of the things on that piece of paper going back to that um surgical masks uh and he is coming from 2021 is this meant to imply that covid also happens in their timeline how how shows? I mean, absolutely, yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. If so, is there any risk of him bringing COVID into the past? <gasps> oh no! Oh, I didn't even think of that. Um, it could be like a bootstrap virus, I guess, potentially, depending how he gets infected. Maybe when he tele, maybe when he time travels, the virus particles don't come with him. <laughs> they just left. Yeah, left yeah. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great idea for a sci-fi story, though? Something to do with, uh, like, localized time travel and viruses or something. I'm sure it's been done. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it feels like something Christopher Nolan would love. You know, yeah, yeah, two, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pandemic through time. Yeah. <laughs> one little thing. I thought the title sequence this week uh, was kind of a new one where we phase through all the different Claire's. That was, uh, it, it was a cool new touch. But at the same time, I wonder... What are they going to do next week? Because they seem to wrap up the whole clearing thing. Like it will feel like we're going backwards now if we just have a normal title sequence next week with one Claire. Like, or if we just repeat this one again too, that will feel like a backwards as well. So I'm just wondering what they're going to do. Yeah, I, I have no idea. I'll be interested to see. We're going to get to see old Claire run out into her yard with a picnic basket, totally unrelated to everything. Um, yeah, that's my guess. Well, maybe we'll see one of um, Henry just running naked through the streets. <laughs> that <laughs> slow motion. That'd be oh, cool. that would be a cool spin on it. Yeah, yeah. Man, I love that sequence of younger Henry and Gomez uh, colliding in the street. That was such a well-realized. It's from the novel as well, but um, I, it took me off guard because I was just hooked into the episode and I kind of forgot where that was going. I love when the show links bits of the storylines in ways you've forgotten or you aren't anticipated connecting. Uh yeah, the scripts are so good at doing that. Is Ingrid a character in the book? Oh, yeah, big time, big time. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. I guess the a little interesting note is that at the end, when Henry writes another bit of paper, Henry leaves um, uh, a note for 18-year-old Claire saying, have mercy. And I guess the way that... That's the point where the whole episode leads up to, the reveal of what was written on the note. And I guess um, her deciding... I guess it's the moment when 
she decides to start being <laughs> nicer to younger Henry, I guess, and just sort of take, well, I guess, pity on him or, or something like that. It's a point where rather than, uh, I guess, I guess it's another example of what we saw in episode one with older Henry kind of making the, asking Claire to kind of be kind to younger Henry. So it's sort of a repeat of that. But in, in this case, it's like, because Claire's seen how, just how, like, I guess pain, painful his life can get with the time travel and situations like Ingrid and like the, the, the constant threat of death. And I guess the sense that, the sense that Claire starts, um, I guess being sweet to him out of a, I guess like uh, out of mercy or whatever is maybe, um, it's not all that romantic in a sense. There's something a bit mercenary about it. Like, okay, well, it's just basic human kindness, yeah. isn't it? To be nice to another, to another person who's clearly suffering rather than like, because, uh, she, she's so powerfully like attracted to him or whatever. I thought have mercy is a pretty hardcore way to say, you know, <laughs> be nice, right? <laughs> like if, you know, you can say be kind, but have mercy. I mean, I took it personally to mean that in the future she's going to be like dictator of the world or something. And, uh, you know, she, she has to withhold her, her bloodthirsty impulses. But no, I mean, she, she's going to, she's going to be Davros in the future. Yeah. She's trying yeah. to stop regretting the Daleks. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, before I get to the last thing I want to say, there's a, just a general thing the show is doing, uh, that I really like. I, I see some other book fans have mixed opinions about it, but I think it's a really, story driving kind of dynamic thing to do and that is the show is really emphasizing that henry's being different people and claire specifically being in love with one of the henry's the older henry that's kind of in there in other versions but it's not nearly this pronounced but i think it's really interesting because it gives like a more of an arc for like younger henry to be like i'm not that person yet and it feels weird that like i'm i have to become this person because i know i become this person like i'm constrained into this not that he's unhappy about me being married to someone like claire in the future but just having him be such a markedly different person or at least claire to perceive them so differently like we're seeing with the have mercy thing i really like that i think it's giving a real bent to this season it's giving it a real kind of focus to it and I think there's got to be a moment at some point where he cuts his hair and it's going to be like such a pivotal, transformative moment. Uh, so I, lo- I think it's giving shape to the season. I like that choice to really foreground that. I think it makes sense of the whole relationship as well in a certain way, like the, the whole time travel relationship. But the, to, to make it really specific, that it was the older version of Henry who kind of, I guess, quote unquote, imprinted on her. And when she meets younger Henry, he is not that guy. So the fact that she starts, to, it, rather than the case of... um her just immediately running into the younger Henry, who is already, like the cool Henry, she's you know, been known since she was a child. The fact that she has to actually start, I guess, from from almost zero and kind of work from the ground up with the young Henry, I think it makes it, well, it makes it more interesting. I guess it makes it more satisfying. I guess it makes their relationship more real because they have to actually work on it rather than it just being there already. It's a yeah. funny thing. It's like I love the relationship as work stuff because that's so honest, you know, and true and great. But like like we were saying with some of the uh, age different stuff, it's, there's some elements of it where I'm like, is this? I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's fiction. It doesn't need to be a good influence. But like the whole idea of um, I can hammer this man who's not really much like what I want at this stage, but I can totally successfully turn him into my dream guy. Exactly. Like you know, obviously fiction doesn't have to model realistic relationships especially romance fiction at all but it's it's very much it's a funny mix where the show is sometimes doing such applicable 
like believable relationship stuff and you know at other times it's doing weird stuff with the ages in funny ways or it's like very positively saying oh yeah you can totally turn a guy into um your, your dream boat no matter what he's like um you can fix him sure it'll work mm-hmm. and i get i guess for the male end of it it's that he just kind of gets randomly rewarded with like this amazing woman you know out of the blue while he's you know working his job in his 20s someone comes along and wants to turn him into something and wants to have him and you know is obsessed with him yeah but you know that that's part of the whole appeal i think of romance fiction is it's modeling unrealistic stuff or stuff that wouldn't make sense in real life and that's kind of the fantasy of it so you know it it makes that sort of sense a last note with the grooming thing i have a moffat clip I'm going to play here, and he's quite impassioned in it. More so than the book, I would say, the series feels very aware of how simultaneously romantic and fundamentally creepy the main love story is here. How did you initially think you were going to approach the challenge of the grooming aspect of the story, and did that evolve as you actually got to work on it? It's just not there. I mean, you can choose to malevolently praise the story to make it sound as though that's what's happening, but it is not. It never has been. Uh, he's already he marries. He's married to this woman. He's with this woman. Uh, he's in love with this woman, and then he accidentally, through no fault of his own, travels back in time. He's not grooming anyone. Why? Would, he's already married to her. Uh, there's none of that actually takes place. And he sets tremendous rules for himself, particularly in the TV show, where he's not going to tell her that they're together in the future. He only ever does so by accident. And by that time, she's 16. He is he behaves in the appropriate way with a child to whom he is attached. He behaves paternally. Now, the thing I keep comparing this to is if I look at a photograph of my wife as a child, then I love that that little thing. I do. Because I am 99% hardwired to love Sue Virtue. I can't help it. I see her in a photograph. I think, there she is. I know she's cross about something. Well, I know she doesn't like that guy. I watched a little film of her recently because uh, we her mother died recently. We looked some some of the old footage and so on. And I just thought, that's just Sue. That's Sue totally. But when I love that little creature... I don't, it's not sexual. How could it be? It's a child. I feel, if anything, paternal. Um, uh, you know, it's you know, we are, we are capable, to say the least, of more than one kind of love. And trying to pretend that there's any sort of sexual grooming content to this at all, it you'd have to make the story happen in a different order for it to be true because it would have to be the case that Henry would meet the six-year-old before the adult version. I mean, it just it just doesn't work at all. It's not right. Now, I think sometimes people kind of want to make trouble, but and if they do, they do. But that's not what happens in the story. It simply isn't. Um, and I worry about, I worry, you know, it's, how, and how terrible to reduce the complexity of love to just sex, because that's not true. That's not true. Sex is an impulse. Love is an opera, right? Sex is a chemically induced itch. Love is the story of the rest of your life. And to to demand that we look at every interaction between two people through a sexual prism is to demean what it is to be human. 
How dare you? No, that's not what's going on. If our father, and I know someone in this situation, has lost, you know, has, if a man loses his wife, but he has children, and one of the, and one of the daughters perhaps grows up to look a bit like his wife, he will find that resemblance a tremendous solace. But of course, it's not sexual, because we are capable of a complicated array of loving feelings for other human beings, hardly any of which are sexual. We do seem to live through a time where we think sex is everything. Well, sex is sex is a programmed response. It's a tiny part of us. And I, I, I take exception to that interpretation of this wonderful story, Audrey Niffenegger's wonderful story about the endurance and limitless compassion of love and its ability to face up to even the end of days undamaged and reducing it to something perverted or unpleasant. Human beings are better and bigger than that. So that here endeth the rant. <laughs> um, thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's well, it's interesting. Um, I definitely see what he's saying and where he's coming from. Um, like, I, I think what he describes, looking at pictures of his, you know, younger wife. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's relatable. Sure. But, uh, but the, again, it's him looking at it from Henry's perspective rather mm -hmm. than Claire's perspective. And it's from Claire's perspective that, you know, the, these kind of accusations and the, well, wait a second. That's where that really comes in. I mean, the whole point. Yeah. You would be a father figure. Or you would have that kind of role. It wouldn't be like a romantic thing if you went back and you took care of your spouse for a day as a kid. Um, yeah. But uh, like obviously, but um, but the whole point is that from the kid's perspective, having someone who is in a parental role and then turns into a you know romantic role, it, that that's dangerous. It's dangerous to conflate the two. And, yeah. um, so I, I think like the whole core of the complaint is embedded within what he himself says right there. And he obviously knows because he references it in the show. I mean, he's lampshading yeah. it the entire yeah. way. Yeah. So for him to just kind of flat out say, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're reading too much into it or, you know, you're, you're with your twisted minds. Um, <laughs> no, you, you did that. It's, it's right there. Yeah. I think it's a usual case of Moffat just kind of not quite seeing what it is that people are complaining about and just kind of trying to turn it around it reminds me of a <laughs> when, when the widow and the wardrobe kind of release and people are like moffat you're you know you're, you're reducing women to just their roles as mothers and he got really angry like oh my god you, you people reducing women to mother who are the real misogynists here hmm, hmm? you know it's like he he, he he compulsively has to try and make the people like being critical into the villains and it's like come on just just be an adult you know just fucking factor in that People criticizing you or stuff you like aren't automatically insane. They might have some kind of point, almost, you know. So I think I think in this case, he, he's kind of not really seeing like the the point of kind of how it works from the, from the point of view of Claire as a child, basically having like a mm -hmm. and, and you know the whole like I mean yeah we we've talked about this for like you know enough like I think we we know we know what we're talking about here like it's the we get we get it I think it's just Moffat it just kind of furiously refuses to. That's yeah. yeah, it's it's like I totally agree with his example. Like it makes it's totally normal and healthy and good to 
see photos of your partner at any age and love them. Of course it is. And it would be disgusting to try and sexualize all of that. Like that, that's a really weird fucked up thing to do. Like if seeing a photo of your husband as a baby and thinking, oh, I was so cute. You know, I love him. I can, I can see it's him by his eyebrows or whatever. You know, I love my husband and how he looks like that. It's, there's nothing more normal than that. It would be insane to try and make that into something weird. But the show is making that into something weird. <laughs> it's having Henry sexualize the clearing and, you know, bring up, no, I taught you French as a kid here. We can't have sex here. That would be so weird. Like, the you could do what the movie does, which is basically, like, the fundamental grooming stuff is there and that he meets her as a kid and she falls in love with him when she's a kid and he's an adult and he's kind of imprinting on her. But the movie just kind of proceeds on its way, you know, and it doesn't... Yeah. And you, you could criticize it for that. You could say the movie's being too simple and it's not digging into the weirdness of it, which would be fair enough. The show is digging into the weirdness of it, which is good, but it also means you can't say, hey, don't dig into this, <laughs> you know, because the show <laughs> is digging into it. The show, Moffat is modeling us how to treat the show, I think. So, yeah, there's a lot of complexities and contradictions there. But I, the quote of his I do really like um, from, from those interviews is how he talks about the show being how time travel is a more realistic way to look at marriage and love than his, you know, completely non-genre sitcoms like coupling and like joking apart. I think that's really kind of sweet and funny and true that, you know, his comedies, which had no magic or sci-fi or anything in them, like coupling and joking apart, were still a, 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 a less encompassing view of marriage and of love because they were so zeroed in on specific ages, like the people in coupling you know, are at that age and they're just getting together or they're just managing an early stage or getting into relationships. But the time traveler's wife is so much about the middle or the the long stretches of relationship and, and trying to navigate that. And so it's more honest or more encompassing about relationships, which is really, really interesting. And of course, part of that, and I think part of the reason I love the show so much is because it just feels so summative. It's not just from a man who's written relationships you know, in shows for decades, it's from a man who's been married for a very long time. And so he has those decades of experience uh, to write from having, you know, loved the same person for so long and been with them for so long. Uh, and that's great. I think that's embodied really well in the show. And it's an interesting contrast to Joking Apart where he was writing from his experience of being divorced. So it's nice to see him write from the experience of being yeah, married yeah, for once that's, instead. <laughs> that, that's a really good point. Yeah, that show we keep bringing up Joking Apart is seething with the depression and anger and all the huge emotions you get from being dumped unceremoniously, which is what happened to Moffat at the time. Uh, and that spurred him on to write, you know, basically this show about his divorce. And it's, it's just, it's one of those amazing works where you just feel a creator's soul in it. You can feel exactly what they're feeling. It's so raw and so born of something they've just been through. It also kind of has the temporal element of it too, because it the, certainly the first season is heavily structured around flashbacks to before the divorce as well. So you kind of get like maybe earlier in the relationship, start of the relationship, the end of the relationship in, in flames and the kind of craziness that happened in between. So it is kind of like the, almost like the, the, the precedent for Time Traveler's Wife in some ways, just in yeah. terms of getting more of a scope on the relationship. Well, I think Moffat thinks, and I agree, and uh, I assume my brain isn't weird for working this way, but that we don't live you know, A to B to C to D in our lives, we're in our brains and we're constantly remembering things and then we're imagining the future and we're always flipping around in our heads. Even as something is happening, we're thinking of the past, we're thinking of the future, we're experiencing the present. Our brains don't just experience something and then march on 
forever. We're always reflecting. We're replaying scenarios in the shower, you know. And so I think for Mm -hmm. TV to emulate that, it's more complicated than being linear like most shows, but it also feels it tickles my brain more because that is more kind of how I experience the world is to, you know, I'm remembering something and then I walk into a room and then I'm maybe informed by what I was remembering. You know, I use a line I remember from a conversation or something. Everything kind of jumbles together in our brains. And so I think the timey-wimey factor in this show now or shows Moffat's done before, not even, you know, Doctor Who, is sitcoms as well. It, it feels really true to life to me in that kind of mental way, which I really, really love about his work. Yeah, there's an emotional truth to it. If you're going to go with the TV and film technique of using editing and montage and cutting from bit to bit to bit and scene to scene to scene, you might as well do it in time as well. Yeah. Because like, if you try mm-hmm. to like create, if you try to recreate linear time like that, you're just kind of being dishonest because linear, yeah. linear time doesn't play out that way with montage and all the shit. So you might as well just lean into it and fuck with time as well as with space and visuals. Yeah, I don't think linear depictions are more realistic. I think they're what we're more used to from how TV is working, but I don't... Yes, in real life, time proceeds linearly, but our brains, you know, they're not camcorders, you know, they're not recording one second, two second, three second, they're flipping around all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think this this show uh, is informed by years of happy marriage from Moffat, which I think is what's new about it, basically. It's doing so many things he's already done in his career, but this feels like it's a statement on a happy marriage and a successful marriage which I don't think he's really done a show directly talking about before like this. And I, I really, really like that. I think that's new territory for him, which is interesting since this is playing with so much stuff he's already done and it's remixing it. And it's from this kind of perspective of I'm in a relationship that is working and that has worked for ages. Uh, and that's a really interesting perspective from him. And I really want to see more of the happily married Claire and Henry that we keep getting little snapshots of. Like we see yes. them in bed, we see them talk for a little bit and then we go away again. I want to see more of how they get on from day to day. She seems to always be sleeping. (laughs) I mean, this wasn't the first episode where he's reappeared in the future and like gone to bed. Um, Yeah, so I'm I'm curious to see more of what their actual like day to day life is in this TV show version of events. And um, and yeah, I really agree with everything you're saying about the time travel. um, Time travel being used as an aspect in fiction to you know, capture all these parts of the human experience that don't show through with regular storytelling. What I really like about this is that it's a way to portray a happy relationship that isn't, you know, relying on divorce and all these other, like, big dramatic events that are in normal things. Um, In particular, the feeling of, like, one of my biggest takeaways from the difference between, like, being, like, dating or being in a relationship and then being married is that 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 underlying um not not a threat but like the option of walking away is suddenly off the table pretty much um and so you know when you have a fight previously it would be like oh you know a oh i have to like be really careful because otherwise this might just end and i don't want that but b also if this goes really bad i have an escape hatch um in marriage that's not a thing and in the show it's not a thing you know when they get in a fight it's not like oh you know what yeah this isn't the henry i was expecting i'm i'm done with this i'm done with him no she knows her future she knows that like that's kind of locked in and that she has a commitment to this person so they're kind of trapped in a framework from day 1 which is very artificial and odd um of 
you know, okay, I, I need to invest in this person and I'm locked in with them. And that kind of investing in a person, I think, is going to be what, well, based on what Moffat said, something that he keeps coming back to and underlining um, as the episodes go on. So I'm very excited to see how this all plays out. That was a fucking fantastic point. Like, I'm really glad you said that. <laughs> really well <laughs> said. Yeah. That's so interesting. So it's like the, it's like a very romantic way of seeing the compromising yourself for another person. That's so, that feels like exactly what he's doing. Yeah. That's so interesting that it's, it's not, it's not even on the table to leave. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not, it's not, it's not like a, it's not like a mutilation of themselves or anything to change themselves for the other person. It's like, it's, that's what the commitment is. It's like they're, there's something bigger than themselves, I guess, uh, is what the marriage is. That's that's so interesting. Yeah, I'm glad I was able to serve my purpose. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, a, it's very romantic. I I thought that's that's really good. That's really inter- that that's very fascinating. Yes, yeah, and that wraps us up for this week, listeners. We'd love to hear any of your thoughts and observations too on this episode four, or the show in general, or our discussion about episode four or the show in general. We always love seeing other people's thoughts on the show too. And thank you again for listening.